Okay, I'm looking at my Warbler app and I'm going to hit the tap to record button. It's recording. It's processing. And soon my Warbler app will tell me, as I sit here in Wormwood Scrubs fields in Shepherd's Bush, London, what birds I'm listening to. It's saying 37% common blackbird, great spotted woodpecker, the black headed gull, the carrion crow and the great tit are all the birds that are singing in this area which I can tell through my warbler app. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Quiet Mark podcast. I'm Simon Gosling your host and I'm CSO at Quiet Mark. It's week 8 of lockdown and I've taken my bike up to Wormwood Scrubs to reconnect with nature, enjoy the beautiful views, be amongst birdsong and as I say, reconnect with nature. And that's the theme of today's podcast, where our guest is the lovely Oliver Heath, who's a biophilic designer. I won't explain too much in this intro what biophilia is, because I'll leave that to Oliver, who explains it brilliantly within the podcast. But as a biophilic designer, if you look at OliverHeathDesign.com and you look at the designs that Oliver and his company have done, you'll see that they're really immersed with nature and a reconnection to nature. It might be tiles with ripples in them which represent the movement of water or the positioning of a table in relation to a window to get the best from the daylight. Oliver, through his work and his designs, evangelises about the well-being benefits that can be brought to us through nature. And like Richard Grove and Colin Ball in episode one and Ethan Bordeaux in episode two, Oliver was one of our expert lineup of masterclass speakers at our Acoustics Academy launch event back in February where his talk was called Biophilic Acoustics what we can learn from nature about sound design. A video of that presentation can be seen on our YouTube channel, Quiet Mark TV. But soon after that presentation in mid-February, I took a train down to Brighton around the 12th of March, just before the lockdown, to record this episode with Oliver in his beautiful practice, which is situated in part of a church. Of course, those pre-lockdown days seem like such a long time ago now. So in order to keep this podcast as topical and up-to-date as possible, Oliver kindly agreed to do another recording with me via video conference just a couple of weeks ago in roughly week five of lockdown. I wanted to reconnect with him, not just to see how he was doing during lockdown, but also because as a follower of Oliver Heath Design on Instagram, I've been enjoying their daily stories and posts which talk about biophilia in a work from home environment. And I thought it'd be a good idea to get in touch with Oliver to find out more about these tips that he's been providing and to share them with you. So thank you very much for tuning in. If this is your first listen to the Quiet Mark podcast, do check out episodes one and two. And if you're returning, welcome back. Thank you for listening again. I hope you enjoy the show. We're going to, first of all, listen to a brief introduction to Oliver, then the recording that we did before lockdown in early March, followed by the video recording that I did during week five, just a couple of weeks ago in lockdown in early May. Let's get on with the show. Oliver Heath is one of the world's leading authorities in biophilic design and its benefits to health and well-being. An industry-recognised expert in the field of sustainable architecture and interior design, Oliver is a frequent contributor to the likes of The Guardian, The Sunday Times and House Beautiful, whilst also spending much of his time lecturing to leading architects across the world on well-being and biophilic design. He regularly hosts seminars, events and award ceremonies including the Sunday Times British Homes Awards and the PEA Awards and is a regular speaker at EcoBuild, 
grand designs, education estates and facility management conferences. Oliver is a trusted voice of authority in interior design, having written three books, and is no stranger to the screen either, presenting on numerous TV channels over the last 20 years, including the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, and my own personal favourite, the BBC's DIY SOS, where his show was BAFTA nominated. Specialising in human-centred design, helping us create more productive, happier and healthier spaces to live and work in, Oliver expertly draws inspiration from the natural world around us to help improve human connections to nature in the built environment. He lectures regularly, presenting seminars and workshops around the world in his role as a biophilic design ambassador with Interface Flooring. Welcome to the show, Oliver. Thank you. Thank you for having me down here in uh, Brighton. We should set the scene. Where are we, Oliver? Uh, we're speaking from my offices, which is in kind of central Brighton. So you'll occasionally hear a mixture of cars going by, but also probably the cheeky seagulls uh, swooping down on people. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of quite a typical kind of urban office environment, which I think is good for setting the scene of the sort of work that we do and the clients that we work with. So looking at the introduction there, um, the word biophilic design will prick a few of our listeners' ears, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to ask the expert, what's biophilic design? Yeah. Well, um, it's something that we probably all inherently know, yet didn't know there was a term that kind of summarises it and and also um, understand the knowledge and the research that sits behind it. So essentially, biophilia means a love of nature. It's a term that was kind of popularised in the 1980s by an American biologist called Edward O. Wilson. Um, And it looks at humans' innate desire to be in closer contact and connection with nature and natural systems. It sort of explains why when we get very stressed Mm. and we go on holiday, we choose to go to the beach, to the mountains, to the forests. And when we're in those spaces, we feel this incredible sense of calm and relaxation, kind of just wash that stress away. And we get back to being who we meant to be. Mm. You know, we have better conversations, we sleep better, we're happier, we're healthier in all sorts of different ways. And then, you know, you kind of go back to the built environment, you know, back to our offices and you, and you kind of feel that kind of that stress just kind of creeping back into you. And within maybe an hour or two, you know, it's as if you've never been away. So, mm. so biophilia is that kind of amazing thing that happens to you when you spend time in nature. So as a result, biophilic design uh, are a set of design principles that we can bring into the built environment that help to improve that connection to nature and to natural processes to in some way draw uh, an emotional connection to those positive experiences as a means to help us to reduce stress, but also to uh, improve recuperation rates from exhausting mental or physical tasks. Plus also, I think, to help us connect with one another by putting us in a more positive, open and optimistic state. It's interesting to hear you talk about well-being-centered design. A lot more attention in the press is on well-being and mental health. Have you seen clients and visitors to your practice um, with that increased awareness come more to you wanting biophilia in their designs that they're commissioning? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the things that is endemic in our modern lifestyles is stress. The World Health Organization stated some time ago that the stress-related conditions of cardiovascular disease and mental health issues are likely to be the two prime contributing factors to illness by around the 2020. Uh, the Health and Safety Executive do a study every year, and the figures from 2017-18 stated that stress accounts for 44% of all work-related ill health, uh, 57% of all working days lost. So clearly, stress-related issues are costing organisations an awful lot of money. Now, design is not going to be the sole mitigating factor to to kind of preventing that. But if it can do anything, then surely we should be looking at how design can support happy 
and healthy functioning of people in buildings. Because let's, let's not forget that 90% of typical business operating costs are in staff, salaries and benefits. Mm. So it's costing organisations an awful lot of money to have people in buildings. So you might as well design the space in a way that keeps them happy, healthy, productive, keeping them in the organisation and not allowing them to leave because that costs organisations lots of money. And also finding ways to attract the best talent coming out of university. So multiple benefits by focusing on health and well-being and really putting your staff and their needs and the, the, the environments that you give to them to spend their lives in. What sort of examples have you had and feedback have you had from clients who've incorporated biofilia into their practices? Rather than come at it from an anecdotal point of view mm. you know it's just me with an opinion mm. you know we tend to pick up on research and collate research uh, we uh, actually write a series of design guides that are free to download uh, where anybody can just sort of come to our website download these design guides that we've been writing with the carpet manufacturer interface that are filled with incredible statistics that demonstrate again and again that when we bring elements of nature into buildings it can improve productivity by anywhere between sort of 6 and 15% it can reduce absenteeism by 15%. It can improve creativity, staff engagement, and also help to connect people by improving levels of communication, by putting people in a more positive and optimistic state. And I should say, it goes far beyond just adding plants and greenery, which is people's kind of like first stop, you know, it's more than just trees and plants. There are so many other things that you can do. Tell us more about those type of things. I mean, you mentioned Interface there as a carpet company, so can that be part of it? Yeah, so basically, uh, biophilic design subdivides into three core areas. The first is in what we call a direct connection to nature. So this is how you bring uh, plants and trees and water and natural light, fresh air uh, and sound and acoustics into spaces. The second is what we call an indirect reference to nature. So this is how we mimic or evoke a feeling of nature using natural materials, colours, textures, patterns and even technologies. Uh, and Interface are a great example of that. They actually take a biomimetic approach to the mm-hmm. design of their tiles and they're inspired very often by natural materials and surfaces, whether it's kind of the, the leaves on a forest floor or the spray of uh, sea on the shoreline, uh, kind of moss growing through cobblestones. Mm. They have all these very nature-inspired carpet tiles. Now, they're obviously not real nature, but they are designed in such an intricate way so that every pattern Every tile literally is random. And when you pop them down and you sit them next to one another, um, you can just pick one up and put it somewhere else. And there's no sort of obvious kind of change of the overall pattern and effect. So it's designed um, much in the same way that nature is is found uh, and that we enjoy it. Let's look at acoustics. What can you do with sound in a space that gets us back to nature? Is this playing natural sounds within, within an office, for example? I think when we start to look at the impact and the benefits of our fillet design, we mm. need to look back because it's an evolutionary design ethos. For 99.5% of human evolution, we've existed in very, very close connection to healthy forms of nature for our yeah. basic human survival. So our senses have evolved to not just survive in those harsh environments, but also to thrive and flourish. Mm. So all of our senses have developed throughout those kind of like thousands of years of evolution as a means to, to exist in those situations, you know, to hear the sound of running water mm. for hydration, to recognise that the snap of a twig behind us might be a predator, mm. to speak in such a way that we can, you know, just have our intelligibility of what we say being heard as we're hunting an animal, but not to distract the animal. Yeah. So all of our acoustic situations have sort of been developed in these situations in, in order to help us survive, thrive and flourish. We've now transisted from a hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. 
into farming environments, into noisy, urban, busy, hectic, bustling, geometric mm. cities. Yeah. And we're much more knowledge-based. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So we've gone from a, a situation where, where sound was really important to help us survive and, and developed in order that we can hear and understand speech to a point where we're working in big, noisy, open plan spaces that are supposed to improve connectivity with people, um, improve sight lines. But actually, we've just become overwhelmed yes. with noise, whether that's through the technology and the smartphones, mm -hmm. the things that go ping, the emails that pop up, the, the noisy person talking about what they did at, at, next to us. You know, we're supposed to be sitting here dealing with knowledge, dealing with information, and yet we are we've evolved in order to kind of recognize and latch onto kind of speech. And that is enormously damaging to how we need to operate today. So I do think we need to look back and recognize the importance of human evolution and find ways of incorporating that back into our built environment in order to help us to reduce stress, but also to help us to be more productive. And if you're in a big space that you're designing, do we create zones for different sounds and different lights and different plant do you find yourself working in, in zonal ways with spaces that you're creating yeah i think the conversation for us always goes back to what is a healthy natural situation and if you think about uh, a healthy forest it's very diverse mm. there are lots of different species it's very rich it's very multi-sensory that sense of diversity of fauna flora but also spaces that we can explore and investigate and support life is sort of fundamental to our appreciation of what makes good space to be in. I yeah. think what's important is that when somebody walks into a space that they can immediately recognize that there are a number of different ways that people can uh, enjoy that space, that it supports their intended activity, whether that's to sit and work quietly, to mm -hmm. have a little one-to-one -one meeting, just to bump into somebody and have a kind of a little kind of creative conversation, maybe have a larger meeting, maybe there's a breakout space, maybe somewhere you can get coffee or a juice, maybe go and sit on the balcony, get some fresh air. You know, this sense of diversity of spaces immediately helps people kind of feel a little bit more relaxed because they recognize that the space that they're looking at can support all, support all their, their physical, uh, their, their psychological, their cognitive and emotional needs throughout the day. So offering people this sort of sensory diversity, uh, I think is really important. And through design, we can start to create very different environments through colors and textures, through different acoustics, maybe scenting, air quality, lighting, furniture. You know, there are so many options that we can use designing, not to express power and identity and wealth, you know, which is kind mm. of how we perceive interior design to be. Mm. But if we were to turn that around and take a more intrinsic approach to go, what if we used all those design tools just to make you feel as good as possible to help you do the task we need you to do as well as possible with as few mistakes, as efficiently, as creatively, and then go and do something else and not get overwhelmed, not get stressed, not need to take a day off, I want to go and work somewhere else, but just to do the job as well as possible. When you are out in nature, Oliver, and you're, I don't know, going for a walk, be it in a forest or along a beach, uh, and you're on holiday, and you're just relaxing, you're not working, but are there moments where you just sort of go, I feel really happy? Why am I feeling happy? What is it in this space which is making me feel this great sense of well-being? And how can I bring that essence to the design that I bring to spaces? Yeah. 
I'm often caught by that um, that idea. I'd like to just bottle this moment, and yeah. I think that would be my superpower if I had one—the <laughs> ability to just bottle a moment and go, "I'm going to have some of that. I'm going to put this into this space." By so that's kind of man. Like, yes, exactly, and sort of condense that. Yeah, I, I, I'm quite conscious of the senses, and you know, when we're in nature, uh, it is very multi-sensory. Mm. You know, if you imagine standing in a forest with with your shoes off, and you can feel the, the kind of moisture of the earth and the pine needles. And you can hear the birds tweeting and the gentle movement of the trees and the, and the fresh scent of pine and maybe earth. All these kind of the light kind of come, come through the trees. You know, it, it's so rich mm. and multi-sensory. And yet we then design buildings where we step in and we've got an on-off switch for the light. We've got monochrome surfaces on the floor, on the walls. We've got limited options for furniture and it becomes quite um, monosensory really. Mm. And I've always been interested in sensory inputs and how we can relay different messages to people for how they can act and feel and deliver tasks through those sensory inputs and bringing those things together. Some things people won't recognise or you don't know necessarily why space makes you feel good. But biophilia kind of helps us understand that and it picks up on some of those key aspects and for a lot of people. Um, natural light is really important, views looking out. Um, they may not be as aware of the haptic quality of, of the materials around them. Mm. And of course, equally, the acoustics. They may know why a space doesn't work for them. They, they just don't recognise it. Mm. But then when you go like, those acoustics are really loud and I can hear the person over there better than I can hear the person sitting next to me speak. Mm. Quite often people don't pick up on that. Um, but I'm obviously very conscious of that and really try and recognise that the incredible benefits we feel in nature and find ways to bring those into the built environment in, in a kind of sophisticated way that just reminds people of those positive experiences in nature and brings them back into the built environment. You speak around the world a lot to architects. Do, have you had people hear you and then say, you know what, I'm literally on the cusp of commissioning a project, a building of some sort, and I'm glad I heard you when I heard you because you kind of steered me in, in a direction which I wasn't necessarily considering. I need to make sure that there's more of an emphasis on well-being and nature for the teams of people that are going to inhabit this space. Yeah, I mean, it happens in different ways. And, and I think um, different countries have different approaches mm -hmm. to biophilic design. And I think that's important. We need to look at our immediate local environment and recognise the things that make people feel good in your local environment and bring them into the buildings that are important to you. In America, there's a much greater focus on the metrics around productivity. They really want to maximize the, the, the sort of the value of their workspace. Um, whereas when I speak in countries in Scandinavia, like Sweden and Norway, mm -hmm. you know, that's a forest-based community, and they've got a much closer cultural connection to the forest, to the shoreline, to natural materials. Um, and then when I speak in the Middle East, there's a quite a different feeling towards nature because being outside is obviously quite a difficult thing when mm. it's extremely hot mm. so when they think about sunlight they think about heat whereas right. in scandinavia they think about you know the light bouncing off snow into their homes and how good it makes them feel but in, in uh, the middle east it's much more like i oh, don't know no, we need shade we we like water uh, we want to stay away from the sunshine so it's I quite see. interesting sort of talking around the world uh, and then again in japan there is a sort of inherent contradiction that we think uh, there is a sort of zen-like quality about a lot of Japanese buildings. But if you go to Tokyo, it is the most hectic, noisy, busy city. And the culture there is so intense. And there's a real disconnection for vast majority of urban dwellers between the way they live and the historical connection to nature and, and, and the sort of zen-like 
Shinto spaces that they've created. Uh, and, and actually, in Asia, they've created a, an idea called forest bathing, or Shinrin-yoku, which is really about spending time in forests and, and soaking up uh, the smells and the sounds and the, the tactile qualities of being in forest spaces as a means to reduce stress and helping people getting back to being at their best. I'm still chuckling in my head at what you said about being able to bottle those elements that you know that, that make make the perfect setting you know whether it's the the moss under your feet this multi-sensory experience which makes us just feel well and you were sort of talking about if you could bottle that that would be your superpower but nevertheless you do try to bring that to your designs that you, that you create how do you how does one apply biophilia to their design but there are lots of lots of different ways and I, I mentioned at the beginning that we've got this direct connection so part of it is about bringing you know real sensory forms of nature and plants and trees and water features light that connects us to our circadian rhythms and also these indirect references that are sometimes uh, more readily installed uh, in in buildings where we don't have much for connection to real forms of nature you know if you think 15 20 years back when we were working we were sitting at our desks and when we turn around we might gaze out the window might have a conversation with somebody we might daydream we'd stop we'd recuperate now we tend to turn around and it's drawn to our phones and we look at news weather um, social media we've always got the sense of directed attention we're always on so we're not really designing spaces from a human-centered perspective and recognizing that we never evolved to be always on and always on the go and always focused and it's incredibly exhausting mm. so we're very much kind of conscious that we need to zone different spaces for different activity and take into account that people everybody gets exhausted at some point and it's far better to give someone a place where they can go for five minutes just to relax and to recuperate to look onto gentle form of movement like a fish tank or a water feature to gaze out a window just sort of gently swaying plants or, or, or bird life um, somewhere where they can relax recuperate get back to being at their best even five or ten minutes is going to have some benefit and then allow them to go back to their desks and be recharged and recuperated so lots of different ways of doing that and I think when we start to look more at the acoustics um, I'm sure the other people in your podcast will have talked at some length at, at creating good acoustics. And of course, we do need to consider how we create a, a backdrop with reduced reverberation times without sort of distracting noises. But beyond that, I think there's a more positive approach to acoustics. And there are mm -hmm. multiple studies from around the world that have demonstrated that, that when we play sounds of nature, it can help us to focus and concentrate and feel more refreshed when we've completed a task. So actually introducing natural soundscapes to spaces are beneficial. And we know that people have been using sort of white noise, you know, the sort of hum of a, of a mechanical ventilation system as a backdrop to mask sounds. But I think in some cases mm. that, that is more harmful than it, than it does, you know, produce benefit to. So our approach is about how we might use natural sounds uh, and introduce it into spaces to start to zone areas, but also to mask it. And water in particular has been shown again and again to be the, the best way of masking uh, sound. So, you know, if you've got somebody kind of talking nearby you, the sound of water will just kind of mask their voice. So you can still hear them, but you can't pick up. The, the, his, their speech becomes unintelligible. So it's about masking, really, and how you do that. And then how you might actually start to zone spaces with other natural sounds and sort of starting to blend them, creating acoustic sensory landscapes within spaces that allow you to do different things.
We mentioned a mobile app when you're on stage at the Acoustic Academy, uh, Noisly. Yeah. And I was reading about that in the app store on the way down on my train down to Brighton, and it was talking about the sort of sounds that it incorporates within the app, which are birdsong, uh, the sound of waves, and it was talking about people being, if they're in an open plan office and they need to focus putting headphones on, wearing noisily, listening, and claiming increases in productivity and creativity through that. Mm. Have you tried that app? Is that something? Yeah, you yeah. Know? I mean, uh, I travel a lot, so having, I get, maybe I'm getting old, <laughs> but just people talking on trains, I just find so annoying. <laughs> I'm turning into a grumpy old man. Um, <laughs> if you're trying to work and somebody is just talking really loudly, five seats away to somebody sitting next to them, and I can hear them. Noisily is quite an interesting app because it takes different natural sounds, recorded sounds. So like you say, it could be birdsong, could be rain, could be the seashore, uh, could be the sound of a, a, a campfire. And it allows you to blend different mixes of these sounds uh, to create kind of an ideal landscape. Mm. And it does sort of take you back to being, you know, outside or camping, sitting around a campfire. And it's really about masking that background noise. So that's slightly mechanical it is good and i think it's really useful because you can you can sort of mix your own different soundtracks and um, there are other bands that i quite like music as well um so a favorite of mine is actually hidden orchestra which is uh, really beautiful they're kind of a mixture of sort of orchestral dance music uh, and natural forest sounds all kind of blended together and for when you're creating and designing is there any else anything else you particularly tune into um, well, in the office, uh, we tend to just have sort of music going on in the background quite gently. Um, I'm quite susceptible to silence and I don't really like silence. I find it quite um, sort of terrifying. It's a bit like sort of having a big blank page and somebody says, go and design something. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, so having some background noise just sort of lifts you out of the kind of realm of silence mm. and creates a little bit more of a a bit of bustle. I think it's nice. Sorry. It, it is, but actually, uh, we've been doing some research for one of these design guides that we write, um, all about sensory thresholds and, and um, sensory stimulation. Mm -hmm. And it really does come down to your personality type. And this is quite interesting, that uh, everybody has a different sensory threshold to different senses. Um, and it goes far beyond whether you're just uh, an introvert or an extrovert. Mm -hmm. Because you can be one of those, but equally be very sensitive to different noises. So uh, one of the women in our office, definitely an extrovert. Right. But she gets very distracted when other people are talking because she wants to be part of the conversation. <laughs> um, and so she knows that if she's got something to do, she's got to put headphones on or, right. or noise-cancelling headphones or something just to sort of muffle out that kind of that background noise. I also, there are sensory threshold tests that you can do. So I also got tested. I'm equally uh, an extrovert, but somehow I'm able to deal with um, background noises and uh, additional stimulation. So I can just sort of shut down. And maybe maybe there is a sort of hunter-gatherer thing in some of us where you just go, I'm just going to be really focused on this thing and I'm not going to get distracted. What is apparent is that we all have different sort of sensory thresholds and, and boundaries that we should become much more conscious of. Mm. And it would be ridiculous to think that everybody's the same and everyone can sit in a big open plan office and be equally productive. You know, it, it's much more neurodiverse than that. It's interesting, um, as you were talking earlier about, you just sort of joking, saying, it must be me getting old, but, you know, infuriated by people on their phones and stuff. I don't think it's an age thing, but actually there was a really interesting piece in The Guardian a couple of weekends ago by a writer called Emma Beddingfield, and she, the front page was 
please be quiet. And she wasn't talking about the, the airplanes that go overhead or the traffic outside. She was actually talking about such noises as people tapping on keyboards or doing FaceTime on the train and these modern sounds that come through technology, this always-on culture. These were the things which were, well, actually quite serious. Um, you know, the World Health Talk Organization talks about noise pollution being the second biggest killer after air pollution. And it starts, it affects most people with annoyance and irritation and it moves its way up to high blood pressure and mm. so on until and it eventually death eventually mortality right, right. Well, i'm going to tell the next person who's <laughs> chatting on the train you're so killing me you're literally going to kill me with this chit chatter <laughs> you were talking about extroverts earlier and introverts and i'm probably going to get the quote wrong rory sutherland who's famed in advertising circles as a real thinker and a technologist but uh, he said we're, at, we're as we record this we're at the height of news about coronavirus and america just this morning has announced no flights from europe going to america except from from the uk we're really at the height of that but rory sutherland sort of jokingly said will people working remotely actually show us how productive companies could be if it wasn't for the fact that we were extroverts and we needed to be together it's going to be quite interesting to see what's the impact going to be yeah well, I, I think for a lot of people being in around a busy situation is actually quite a good thing people like to be sitting in cafes working away with a little bit of hustle and bustle going on around them they feel like they're in a productive environment i think there are benefits that people won't be distracted but equally i think there are going to be lots of negatives as, as we experience greater levels of loneliness dislocation from our environments, um, disconnection from the kind of company ethos, mm. but also recognise how important a sense of community is. And this is an area that the kind of we've been really interested in. We've recently written a design guide on how we should be designing to enhance community through elements of nature. And the, the basic sort of premise behind it is, think of that moment when you're sitting around a campfire with friends and family and you, you kind of feel that incredible sense of warmth and safety mm. and you've got that kind of crackling of the fire you've got the kind of visual movement you might be cooking food and then there's the kind of uh, there's the smell of the fire very rich environment and it, it literally reduces your heart rate and your blood pressure levels and it puts you in a, quite a different state to start to interact with people and you have quite different conversations with you people. do and, it, and and it's that moment of kind of how do you get people to be in that state and to connect with other people to have different conversations that we think is really important that nature can do and from that basic premise we've sort of looked into this idea well what what other things can we bring into buildings to enhance community and what is the benefit of having a community in a building and we are seeing that organisations, whilst not wanting all their staff to be in the office at any one point, are recognised that when people come in, how do they get people from different departments to mix, mingle, bump into each other, to share an idea, to have a conversation? Um, because when you kind of start talking to people, that's when you might share an idea, a skill, some knowledge, or maybe a resource, and that's when innovation starts to happen. 70% of uh, what we communicate is actually non-verbal. Getting people to, to meet and talk is really, really important. And anybody that's been on one of those electronic phone call conversations and you've kind of been like frustrated at how difficult it is to communicate creatively with right. somebody that you can't see. You can't see those subtle inferences of body language or if somebody's about to speak or their reaction to an idea. So getting people to see each other is one thing, but also getting them in the same room is it's also important. And, and I think we're going to yeah. recognise 
just how important and valuable that is for creativity and innovation. You mentioned some design guides which were available via a dot com. Could you share that dot com and maybe a little bit more about what one can expect from these design guides? Yeah, we've written extensively about biophilic design, about how you can bring it in at a low cost, medium, high cost level, about how it can enhance well-being and even community. And we've got lots more design guides coming out and they're all free to download. Excellent. So if you go to oliverheathdesign.com mm-hmm. uh, forward slash resources. Right. And on that, on the left-hand side, there are a series of design guides. You just click on that, uh, takes you through to another site. You can download them all for free. So loads and loads of knowledge and research and, and creative thinking about how we can improve that connection to nature in the buildings that are so important to our lives. Um, I mentioned in the introduction being a personal fan of DIY SOS and I think that's going to be a part that actually a lot of listeners will really love. I mean, it's such a great show. It's it's an institution. Uh, Can I ask, how did you get involved with the show and was there a particular example in that where you've helped a family home and they've really benefited from biophilia within that setting due to the people's circumstance that they find yeah. themselves in. Um, well, I've been working television since about 1998. And so I've sort of gone through a few different shows and, and got invited to do DIY SOS, which is an uh, amazing thing happens, you know, when you get a whole community of people yeah. clubbed together um, and just kind of helping somebody out who's less fortunate than themselves, who might be a neighbour that they never even knew. So it's kind of, uh, it's incredibly heartwarming. Mm. It's, it's quite chaotic and hectic and really hard work. It must be. Um, but the example that uh, springs to mind mm-hmm. was one where I worked with a woman called June Finley um, up in sort of Newcastle, Sunderland area. Um, and what happened was she was struck down by Clippers disease, which left her with a sense of numbness in her, in her, in her hands and feet and her limbs. And um, she lived in a, in a kind of council, two up, two down house, very familiar house. Um, for anybody who's able-bodied, it, it was a house that kind of worked. But because she couldn't move, she couldn't go upstairs, she was became confined to a hospital bed in her kitchen. So literally, Goodness. the space that where her dining table was, was her hospital bed. And uh, she'd become completely disconnected from the rest of the house. She had her back turned to the view out to the garden. Um, there were, there were curtains drawn to give her some privacy. It was a really sort of distressing situation. So um, what I designed was, was an opportunity, a way of giving June a fresh look onto her garden. So we built a small extension to the side of the house mm-hmm. and I reorientated her bed. Uh, we put in a window so that when she was lying in bed, the window was the right height that she could see out to the garden. Okay. Um, and then the other direction, there was a kind of folding sliding door with a wheelchair threshold so she could wheel from a bedroom out onto a decking. There were kind of um, planters in the garden at wheelchair height. There was a water feature. We built a green wall outside her window. I think I saw so, this episode. So, so there okay. were plants growing and just these kind of tiny beautiful moments of a bird <clears throat> coming and sitting on the plant or a dewdrop catching a spark of sunlight. Lovely. There were lots of ways that we kind of brought this direct connection to nature to June when she was lying in her bed, looking out to the garden. We allowed her to be wheeled out onto the decking. Um, there was there was plants at all different heights. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just plants on the ground. There was kind of plants in her periphery vision. Lots and lots of natural light brought into the space. And then in other areas where we couldn't bring plants, we added sort of uh, colours and textures, 
of, of, of nature. There was this wonderful moment, actually, this is kind of the, the, the most eye-opening moment, was when June was wheeled back in after we'd completed the house, and it was chaos, and there were hundreds of people <laughs> involved. So I talk about the design, but it was kind of the people coming together that really made it happen. Mm. But there was this moment where June had been wheeled back into the house, and what we'd been given was a, an old oak table or as a pine table Mm -hmm. and uh, they said well look you're the designer Uh, this is just a secondhand pine table do something with it so what I did is I sort of actually set it on fire with a blowtorch and I scorched this table and what it did is it burnt off the softer bits of wood in between the grain and I brushed it down and it it turned this table into a bit like a sort of piece of driftwood that had all the kind of ridges and peaks and troughs so when you ran your hand over it, it had this incredible texture to it that felt very very natural so when June was wheeled back into her home she was wheeled to the kitchen table and then she opened her eyes and she looked around and of course she's sort of somewhat overwhelmed just because of all the of kind of the new things and there's camera people and lights and then she just reached out quite instinctively and put her hand on the table and felt this natural texture and just started smiling mm. and there was this kind of light bulb moment for people in the room and I think for the viewers and also for for the presenter Nick who was like immediately like he was a bit of a cynic of what I was doing <laughs> on the show and immediately he was like oh well of course this is biophilic design this is about us putting you back in connection to nature and she just this kind of radiant smile came over her and that was this most wonderful like moment of like yeah this nature connection is really important and you know June was a really keen gardener before she got clippers disease so bringing nature back into her visual sight lines into the sort of haptic quality. The sound of water was important because we had a fountain in a garden. So connecting her with all these different elements of nature was absolutely essential to, to for, for for June's well-being uh, as she was recovering from Clifford's disease. So that was a kind of really lovely yeah. experience to, to kind of find ways of bringing it back into what is you know a very very familiar house it wasn't like there was a big budget it wasn't an incredible house there were loads and loads of simple things you can do hopefully we sort of managed to demonstrate that through the show oh how lovely it must have been for you to experience that and thank you very much for sharing that it's story it's been, oh, it's been lovely chatting with you and i wish you well great thank you i've really enjoyed it Hi, Oliver. It's great to see you again. Good to see you as well, Simon. Yeah. Yeah, well, the last time we spoke was in early March, just before lockdown, when I came down to your uh, studios in Brighton. And uh, since then, of course, we've been in lockdown. And they're saying that the UK is 20 to 50% quieter now than pre-lockdown. And uh, we can hear the birds singing again. And one little dicky bird tells me that since I saw you, you've celebrated a bit of a milestone birthday in lockdown. What was it? Yeah, that's right. I turned 50. Yeah, not the best time to have a significant birthday um, in, in as much as that wasn't quite as sociable as I was planning. Mm-hmm. But it was lovely just to spend time with the family and just to hang out. And um, yeah, my wife made a real effort and they, uh, lots of our friends made little video messages which they sent me, which was really touching. It was lovely. Fantastic. Well, congratulations from everyone at Quiet Mark. It's quite a milestone. I'm glad you had a good time. I follow you on Instagram and you've been putting up some really good videos on your Instagram stories recently in your gallery. At the moment, of course, you're putting up posts which are sort of uh, how to bring biophilic design into our work from home spaces. Maybe you could share with the audience some of the tips that you're sharing in your videos and in your and what you're doing there. 
Yeah, well, we've, we've learned from the commercial world and a lot of our work really looks at the workplace and how uh, an addition of nature or connection to nature can reduce stress uh, and improve outcomes, things like productivity and creativity. Now, as we've shifted from the traditional workplace into the work from home space and mentality, we are looking to bring some of that learning into the domestic environment. Uh, and learn and translate that. And what I have noticed from all these kind of online calls like Zoom and Skype is that lots of people don't have their workplaces very well set up and that it's not good for their well-being. So we've just been posting messages about how they can make subtle changes without necessarily spending money. It's doing simple things like moving a desk close to windows, which means that you get more natural light. You may have a view looking out onto trees or greenery, maybe your garden if you're lucky. Um, It might be about your acoustic situation and how to deal with the noise of family and pets and background noise and sound masking devices. And we've also been looking at how you can improve natural light coming in. So lots and lots of features, of course, plants and greenery uh, as well to improve acoustics in rooms. So yeah, just looking at how people can do subtle things to improve their connection to nature, to improve their mental health and to improve their productivity. I've got a Wi-Fi extender. I'm one of the lucky ones that does have a garden in London uh, and there was no Wi-Fi in it. So one of the first things I did was got a Wi-Fi extender and with the lovely weather we've been having, my desk is out there and I'm getting lots of sunlight. Your Instagram calls it photon showers. What's a photon shower? A photon shower, yeah, yeah. It's a nice expression, isn't it? It's a line that came from Professor Russell Foster, who's a circadian neuroscientist at Oxford University. And I believe he made it up. But essentially, a photon shower is an intense burst of natural light first thing in the morning to reset one's circadian rhythms. And our circadian rhythms are our body's reactions to periods of light and dark across a 24-hour period. It affects our mood, our behavior, and importantly, our body's release of melatonin and serotonin, which are the body's sleep-wake hormones. Essentially, when you have a balanced circadian rhythm, you feel alert and awake in the daytime, but also have the ability to get a really good night's sleep. As we evolved in very close connection to nature, we would have spent significantly greater amounts of time outside in natural light. And it's the subtle changes that we see in natural light, particularly in the morning and the evening, um, that affects our circadian rhythm. Now we spend ordinarily 90% of our lives indoors. uh, And in these days, probably more like 98%. So getting enough natural light is kind of fundamental Mm. for our ability to, to work, but also to sleep well. All right. And in talking of gardens as well, the guest on our podcast episode before the one we're recording now, episode two, one of our guests was a lady called Carolyn Forte, and she's responsible for the Good Housekeeping Seal. And she is the queen of clean. Honestly, Oliver, there's nothing she doesn't know about cleaning that, you know, you couldn't, couldn't write down. She's amazing. We were talking about the boom in people baking bread from home, and it wasn't because necessarily because people were scared of sliced loaves running out in their supermarkets. It was probably more to do with doing something at home to get away from the laptops, break up the room, make bread. Is It puts a lovely smell in the home, but it also there's a satisfaction in baking bread. And as queen of clean, I asked her, is cleaning around the home therapeutic and she she swore it was and she talked about what the benefits that cleaning and a good jobs cleaning could do what about gardening yeah i would completely agree gardening i think is very therapeutic but also very mindful and there is something wonderful at the moment about the much slower pace of life and our ability just to take that little bit more time and to observe the subtle changes that are going on around us of course at the moment it's spring outside and we're seeing nature burst into life it's literally like kind of like green fireworks all around it's gorgeous and it's amazing it's wonderful just sort of you know taking something as simple as a tiny little brown seed and putting in the earth in about 
10 days later, seeing a little shoot and a leaf pop out. Mm. It's like a little kind of photovoltaic panel that's soaking up all that energy. And then it grows into a stem and more leaves start to form <laughs> and it starts to sprout. And it's, you know, there is absolutely a sense of magic about it. Really and is. in these days where there is so much outside of our control and the fear associated with that, being able to plant something and to nurture it and see it grow, I think is incredibly satisfying. It really is. You might remember there's a part in the podcast uh, that we recorded when I came down to see you where you we kind of joked if you had a superpower, you'd be biophilia man and you'd be this guy that could um, bottle the essence of when you go away on holiday and that sense that you get from being on a quiet beach or sitting on a on a hillside or something like that where it's really quiet. Talk about being able to bottle that now. Ethan Bordeaux, who also was in episode two, is currently on his bike and he records quiet parks in New York and he's going to be putting them on the Well Building Institute's website so that post-lockdown, people are going to be able to download those recordings and listen to just birds singing in Central Park. What do you think about what we're learning about silence at this time and people's connection to nature? I think because we are spending so much time in far fewer places, you know, essentially a majority of us are spending more time at home when normally we would be getting out and going to work, going to the supermarket, maybe bars, shops, restaurants, mm. shopping malls. And now we're just kind of far less diverse in our spatial experience. And that I think rather focuses one's uh, understanding of the impact that space has mm. on one's physical and mental and emotional states. And we're recognizing that nature has a big part to play. I do a lot of running and mm -hmm. I've noticed over the last few weeks just the sheer number and increase of runners getting out uh, in the parks, up on the South Downs near where I live or down on the beach. So many more people are recognizing the need to get out and be in nature and the enormous benefit it brings them when particularly when doing exercise and uh, how much better it is really to be getting out and doing exercise in forests, in parks, down on the beach. Uh, because of that rich multi-sensory quality, mm. whether it's the improvement in air quality, the freshness, the, the sort of wind blowing across their skin, or perhaps, as you mentioned, some of the more subtle experiences like the, the acoustics of those spaces, being able to hear birdsong, the, the rustle of little animals, the kind of mm. gentle movement of plants around you, really enriches one's experience of place and space and, and sort of deepens that experience and connection to that place. It so does. I cycle from my home to my home uh, every single day. Generally, my, my cycling, it's about 10k ride. And obviously, there's no traffic on the streets. There's hardly anyone around. And it is joyous. It's so lovely to get out for that time. I, sometimes I have a podcast on, sometimes I just listen to natural sounds, but it is, it is wonderful. There was something, a final question uh, I wanted to ask you, and it was basically this. I came down, I saw your lovely practice uh, before lockdown, your lovely offices, and met some of your team. And we were really on the cusp of lockdown at that time. It was just before it all locked down. And we, we spoke a little bit about... You can't beat the interactivity of a team working amongst colleagues and seeing the whites of their eyes, so to speak, and so on. Obviously, we don't want to lose that. But has your perception of remote working and working from home changed at all due to this five-week period of lockdown that we've experienced? Well, obviously, technology has stepped in for many of us, and we're spending a lot more time connecting through the likes of Zoom or Skype or Teams. But still, I've got to say, 
nothing really beats sitting around a table and just having that time that's not being supported by electronic means to interact. What I am noticing in particular is the ability for one to perceive a focus of attention, either by eyeline or by the, the sort of acoustic transmission of voice towards a particular person. And when we look at a screen, particularly if you've got seven or eight people, it's very difficult to turn to one person and go, I'm thinking this, what do you think? You yes. literally have to name them by person and it, it's more difficult to have an interaction and to gather feedback, I think. So, I mean, obviously the technology has done us an incredible service mm, in these difficult times. And 20 years ago, it would have been very, very different. But I, I've got to say, I still really miss the creative experience of sitting down for longer periods of time with people and just scribbling stuff on a whiteboard or big sheets of paper, tearing it up, trying again. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I don't really feel is... Um, given sufficient kind of space on an electronic format in quite the same way. We can do it, but I, I just still feel meeting up and being together is important. I agree. I mean, listeners to the show will know I'm a music fan and I think, you know, the Beatles are one of my favourite bands and I'm not sure Lennon and McCartney could have quite existed via Zoom. I think the sitting on the, you know, we, we see all those images of those two before they made it, sitting in, I don't know, Paul or John's bedroom on the edge of a single bed in a bedroom, strumming their guitars and writing those initial hits. And that inter that there's something in that connection that I don't think can happen electronically, although it has made great advancements. And when you have to, you do. Well, Oliver, I just want to say thank you again for taking a bit of time before we go live. <laughs> it's a pleasure the time, man. It's lovely to see you. And uh, hopefully, talking of real connections, I'll be able to chink real glasses and toast you to your 50th birthday, which you celebrated recently. Again, thank you and congratulations. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Episode 3 of our Quiet Mark podcast, a biophilic special with Oliver Heath. I hope Oliver has inspired you to reconnect with nature, take some photon showers, maybe enjoy the practice of shirin-yoku, getting out to the forests or to nature and just bathing in the sounds and the feelings and the senses. That's exactly what I'm doing now, as I said at the beginning. I'm in Wormwood Scrubs and I'm looking at long grass in front of me blowing in the wind. There's dog walkers going past, social distancing of course. There's uh, a bit in Wormwood Scrubs which is famous for people flying their remote control planes which can be quite noisy. I've made sure I've sat a little way from there but I do love watching the planes just glide up as I'm doing right now. The birds singing. This is such a lovely way to work. It's a really fearful time at the moment with coronavirus and the news every day is obviously focused importantly on Covid and how it's spreading and the return to work, the new normal. And I really personally do find that this connection with nature just helps soothe my mood. In fact, the Financial Times recently ran a headline that said, has it taken the virus to reconnect us with nature? As I was recording this with my headphones on in the park, a couple of dog walkers walked past and asked me what I was doing. And I explained and they said, yes, we were just talking about birdsong and how it seems louder than ever. It's really lovely to see people enjoying it. And if biophilic acoustics is your thing, 
I really recommend that you listen to episode two of the Quiet Mile podcast. In that episode, I had a conversation with a lady called Carolyn Forty, who is a director at the Good Housekeeping Institute. She works in Hearst Towers, one of the most iconic buildings in New York. It is designed by Foster and Partners. It has this beautiful glass prismic uh, tower above an Art Deco building, and she explains about that. But one of the things that she says in that show is that the building is designed in such a way that the roof captures rainwater, which it sends down to the basement, and then it pumps it up into these rivlets, which run either side of escalator banisters in these little streams which go down the banister. And she said not only does the stream create a beautiful sound, it also humidifies the uh, the reception area, the, the huge foyer of the Hearst building where Good Housekeeping is based. And uh, she talks quite a lot about the benefits, she says, when you come in from the the honking horns of the yellow cabs of New York and the hustle and the bustle, you walk through the doors, you hear that water and between the hustle and the bustle and your arrival at your desk, even if you're not focusing on it, those rivlets and that sound of water have really calmed your mood and really prepared you for a day. So it's wonderful to hear Carolyn talking about that. And as I say, you can hear that on episode two of the Quiet Mark podcast via Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever channel you prefer to listen to. And if that's what we've been enjoying in our previous episodes, what do we have to look forward to in future episodes of the Quiet Mark podcast? Well, in the pipeline, we've got recordings with Adrian Passmore, another one of our speakers at the Acoustics Academy launch event. And Adrian is an acoustician with Arup, and he talks to us about demystifying the science of acoustics. Arup use technology in really interesting ways. Not only do they use virtual reality so that you can visit a building before it's being built and explore it in full 360 and see what it's going to look like, but they also have an acoustics version of that where you can put some headphones on and get an understanding of what the building of the future is going to sound like. And Adrian tells us how they're able to make adjustments to the experience so that you can hear the building in different ways before you've even built it. And another future episode is with Shane Cryer from Echophon, where we look at acoustics in education. San Goban Echophon's products are Quiet Mark awarded and appear in our Acoustics Academy, and they create acoustic panels, acoustic ceilings, which improve the acoustics in all sorts of spaces. And it's fascinating to hear Shane talk about how they want to recreate the acoustics of the sky. He talks of a Greek amphitheatre which had perfect acoustics and how the goal is to achieve those perfect acoustics within modern buildings today and in the future. He also shares incredible stories of how when acoustics are good in classrooms, absenteeism reduces, well-being of the pupils increases and the overall results even get better. So, incredible things being discussed in future episodes. Thank you for joining us for this one. I hope you can join us for those ones. Stay tuned, and I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. For now, stay safe, and goodbye. Bye-bye.